You open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. So we came out of Proverbs 7, which has the harlot, the woman folly. And now we come to the woman wisdom. Now, as we jump in here, there's a structure. And the structure that we're going to see, the first 10 verses are sort of introduction. And then verses 12, sorry, the first 11 verses are an introduction. Verses 12 to 31, we have the lesson, which is two major parts. And the conclusion is the last five verses, verse 32 to 36. Now, in the main lesson, we're essentially going to see wisdom and the fruits of wisdom in us. And then we will see wisdom personified. And this is Christ. And so we have here this text which has two major controversies associated with it. One, if this is Christ, why is this a woman? And two... Verse 22 in the Septuagint is translated as saying that wisdom is created. In the Hebrew, it says that God possesses wisdom. But in the Greek translation, it said that he was created. And so the Arians used that verse as a principal verse for the doctrine, the false doctrine, the heretical doctrine, a damnable heresy that Christ was created. And so these things we have to deal with. And the other one is a problem both in ancient Gnosticism, the idea that Christ is both man and woman because of this idea that the soul and the body don't have a proper relationship. And if the body is just kind of this prison for the soul and the soul doesn't have any sort of gender associated with it, then sure, Christ could be a man, a woman, whatever. And so ancient Gnosticism could have this problem. And in our own time, as we see an obsession with a sort of Gnostic view of sexuality. This is something that needs to be addressed. So, the Hebrew is authoritative, and the Greek translation is wrong. That is a simple answer to the controversy about Christ being created. He's not created. We know this. There are other texts that teach this, and the Hebrew is authoritative, not the Greek translation. Secondly, the woman wisdom is presented here because the book of Proverbs is principally written for the idea of instructing sons. And what are men attracted to? Men are attracted to women. And there's the danger of the woman folly, and there's the woman wisdom, which should be embraced, which should be pursued. And so this is put forward in the figurative form. And so that is why... Wisdom is referred to as a, wisdom, as a woman here. And why the end of the book has the manifestation of the beautiful life of the woman of valor in chapter 31. And so that goal is to train up the man to be worthy of that woman and then to find one and marry one. So those are principal issues. 
my goal will be to not focus on those issues of controversy, but to draw out the text for you. Let's read the text now, having dealt with those dogmatic matters beforehand. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way, where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence. And you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things. And from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Yet, while as yet, He had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When He prepared the heavens, I was there. 
when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now therefore listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Back at the beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 to 5, we're given a setting and the people that are being addressed. So let's look at the first three verses. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way, where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. Now, I have shown you how if we think about the harlot, how she is sort of a prowler. That she would be setting up ambushes. If she were a combatant, she is seeking to pick off the weak and to destroy them. This sort of guerrilla warfare is the tactic of the one who doesn't control the place. Guerrilla warfare is the mechanism of causing damage and seeking to harm the one who controls the place. The woman wisdom takes her stand on a high hill and the controlling highways by the controlling center of the city. She is the dominant position and she is assembling her forces. The principle of concentration is occurring. She calls for the simple and calls for the fools and demands that they bow. She calls that they submit and listen to her teaching and forms this assembly. Her mechanism is not the mechanism of the destroyer. Her method of warfare is the method of victory. Her method is to conquer. Her method is to pull together the resources that are necessary to take decisive points and to win. What she does is takes the high ground. The high ground is the most defensible, and the one that allows for the most obvious use of offensive tools. Because observation is necessary in order to go on the offensive. Hills have an enormous amount of combat benefit. The combat benefit of a hill is you are able to use the high point and to observe, and you are able to use the high point to hide. One of the principles of war is the principle of security. And the principle of security is hide information from the enemy and get information from the enemy. And hills allow you to do both. Wellington was famous for having the principle of 
using hills to hide his troops just beyond the peak so that the enemy artillery would fire at troops on the peak, waste enormous amounts of ammunition, and fail to hit anybody. Anything significant. Hills have always been viewed as useful in combat. The idea that you can see more and that you are harder to approach. The, da- the danger of hills, the danger of hills is that hills tend to be undeveloped. And so they tend to be difficult to access. But this is a hill. It's not only by the main road. It's by a main road that has an intersection. And so it provides maximal mobility. All the principles of war are displayed in excellence in the woman wisdom. And that's not even the main point of the text. So, the hill, in its most literal usage here, is used to project out the weapon of proclamation. And so, she stands on the high hill, she cries out, she lifts up her voice, and she is striking with a wide area effect weapon across a wide area with filled up places. The gates, the road, not even just the road, an intersection of the road. If you're using an area effect weapon, like something that explodes, the, you know, the daydream you have for being effective is, if only all of my enemies would gather here in this small area so that I could make it blow up, so that they would all be hit. And she is in this place where there's this stream of the simple and the fools, and she's hitting them with the area effect weapon. Compare this to the harlot lurking around trying to pick off a few weak ones on the edges. And then the danger of the haughty, strong, who are taken down by the harlot. Now, you might think being on this hill makes her observable. And so is this haughtiness? Is this pride? We're called to be a city on the hill. We are to attack... And if the enemy attacks us on our strong point, praise God, so be it, pass the ammunition. That position is a strong position. One of the great failures of Robert E. Lee's career was at Gettysburg repeatedly striking the high ground when it was possessed by a superior number of Union forces. There's another famous lesson, a hill called Malvern Hill, Recent infantry charges up the hill against artillery, firing grape shot. Area effect weapons firing from the high ground, hitting massed troops. So what will you do? Attack the high ground without massed troops? Great, even easier. It is a delightful thing when you have an excellent position to be attacked by the enemy. It is a desirable thing to be attacked by the enemy when you have a strong position. Because when the enemy attacks and the enemy fails, the enemy is at his weakest point. The principle of the initiative, the last stand. That if the enemy attacks you when you're in a strong position and you shatter his strength, when he leaves, you pursue. You take the initiative. You go on the offensive. The pursuit is the time when the most casualties occur. A fleeing enemy in disorder, being chased. That is what you want. 
one dream after the other. Area effect weapons. Hitting the enemy, attacking you at a strong position, followed by the pursuit, the charge. How does the woman wisdom compare to the harlot? Is she more impressive? Does she seem like a better companion? Does she seem worthy of spending your life with? She cries out by the gates, the place of power, the place of rule, the place where the market is. At the entry of the city, a choke point, a defile. If you can get the enemy to be at a choke point, and you can bring your strength against a portion of his strength, you get the benefit of defeating in detail If you can cause the enemy to not come out, but to hide in the city, you can take him without a fight. And so this position is a dominating position, a decisive point. It is a point that is significant, it's meaningful, it's valuable, and it's obtainable, it's achievable. Wisdom shows haskell here, skill. Remember, this wisdom in the performance of tasks. So this point of leverage, a force multiplier, we are to follow this example. What can we do? What can we take control of that increases our power? Is it obtainable? If not, move down the list. If yes, see if there's anything higher that you can take with the same resources. If no, you found the right target. If there's multiple ones that seem similarly valuable and similarly easy to get, blessed are you. You can take your pick. But find something that's takeable, obtainable, and significant. Improve your condition. This is the process of dominion. And it involves gardening, working, the adding, and also the guarding, the preserving, the keeping, the protecting. And so here we have this sort of warfare principles laid out as a type of keeping, but also this warfare is a warfare for keeps. She is calling men into her service. Verse 4, To you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. So to the whole race of man, wisdom is speaking. Especially to the youth. Because the youth are the ones who are the easiest to transform. They have not the hardened habits of old age. And so notice that the scoffer, the scorner, is not really mentioned here. What does it say? It says, O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Now, the word for fool here is keselim, which you may remember me talking about before. It's the one who is perverse or becoming perverse because of laziness or obtuseness. Right? This, this perverseness from being lazy in thinking. And she's saying, come and think and thereby put off your perverseness. The simple ones, the ones who are not wise 
who are not advanced in their scorning, come and learn. And so, the naive and the fool are called to learn. And the hope is to convert. And the expectation is that a scoffer will come to do battle. But for as long as she can, she will draw the simple and the fools. And when the scoffers come to do battle, she's in a strong position. She will fight and win and make a bigger victory out of it. So the call is to understand prudence, to understand wise action, and to have an understanding heart, to have a heart that understands the meaning of things, has right definitions. And that will allow the person to gain wisdom. So verse 6. Here's the exhortation and the motivation to listen. Listen up, and here's why. That's what's about to be said. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Those three lines. Okay, so... There's an association here with kingly, priestly, and prophetic. The first line, the idea of excellent things, the word for excellent, it's a word that really kind of means something that's direct or straight on, head on. Uh, It's before the face of. And it implies the idea of, of the direct taking of something, something that's efficient. And it's often translated as princely. Okay, so you think about the fact that old translators have even associated this with kingliness, being princely. The idea is you take direct action that is right, as opposed to the sort of crooked, perverse action that is indirect and deceptive. So the idea that, listen, I will speak efficient things, or you might say direct things, princely things. And from the opening of my lips will come right things. Now, the word there for right is the same word back in chapter 1, verse 3, that's translated as equity. So, in chapter 1, verse 3, there's this list of of benefits. It's to receive instruction of wisdom, Justice, judgment, and equity. And I talked to you about how equity is there. It's a word that's associated with some priestliness. The idea of things that are fitting, things that are fair, things that are beautiful. Fair not in the sense of, like, that's not fair. But fair in the sense of, you know, only the brave deserve the fair. Right? That kind of thing. Right? We're talking about this, this idea of beauty. Things that are fitting. So... Listen, for I will speak princely things. From the opening of my lips will come beautiful things. For my mouth will speak truth. So, things that are righteous, things that are beautiful, things that are true. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. An abomination, this sort of associates with this disgusting, filthy thing that needs to be removed. So um, as opposed to something that's beautiful, or 
holy. It's this disgusting thing. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Compare the idea of the abomination to the lips to, remember the speech of the crafty harlot? She was speaking abominable things, trying to seduce. And the goal of the father in chapter 7 was to cause the young man to see the seduction so that the power play of the seduction was made disgusting to him. So he saw it as a trap. So he saw it as this, this wicked, manipulative effort. Think about the abominable speech of the gang. It says, we'll all share one purse. We will trap people. We will take from them. We will use our strength. We are young men, and our glory is our strength. Wickedness is an abomination to the lips of wisdom. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked. Okay, that word crooked is sort of the opposite of that word princely above. It's like the straight on versus the like the 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 the, the crooked, the, the going around. And then or perverse. And that word perverse is sort of the opposite of the word uh, equity or, or beauty above. Okay? The word perverse is sort of the ugly, twisted. Twisted in the sense of making it ugly. So nothing crooked or perverse is in them. So, these words of wisdom, they are with righteousness. They're not crooked, they're not perverse, and there's nothing crooked or perverse in them. So one of the glories of singing the Psalms is that very thing. They are inspired words. They're breathed out by God. And so we get to sing these words There's nothing crooked in them. There's nothing crooked mixed in. There's nothing perverse mixed in. It is purely those words that are tried and tested and that are from the mind of God. And so the words of wisdom, we're to to take in these words. And that's one of those benefits of psalm singing. The words of wisdom, verse 9, are plain. They're all plain to him who understands. Once you have understanding... Once you have right definitions, they're all plain. If you don't have definitions, if you don't define your terms, you don't know what you're talking about. Having right definitions all of a sudden makes it much easier to get, which is why the learning process starts with grammar. What are the terms? What do they mean? What are the terms? What do they mean? So much of the introductory is simply answering what is, what is, what is, what is. Look at the shorter catechism. What is effectual calling? What is God? What is justification? What is sanctification? What is adoption? So many what is questions. What is the third commandment? Right? So many what is questions. Defining the terms. And so the introductory things, when you understand, the words of wisdom become plain, become simple. You get the definitions, and all of a sudden you go, this all fits together. The system, the logic of it, becomes apparent. And the beauty of the connectedness of the system, the coherence of it, this magnificent structure, this edifice of truth. And then, as you begin to learn how to use it, 
and which part is good for what place and what time, the beauty of it will blow you away. And so that's the rhetoric. And that's the idea of how back in verse 6, from the opening of my lips will come right things, beautiful things. We have to put forward those that are mature who are able to put forward the beautiful things that are right and that are true. And each of us has an area where we need to do that. But the goal of the division of labor is to make it so that we can put those who are able to do what wisdom is doing here forward. And the goal for every man is to be trained in wisdom, to be elder qualified, to be one who is able to display the beauty, speak the beauty, who is able to display the rightness and to speak the rightness, who is able to understand and believe the truth and manifest a witness to it in a life. And so the truth can be communicated effectively. So elder qualification and pursuing that in your life is about that, this ability to do this, to engage in this glorious warfare. Now, the words of wisdom are all plain to him who understands. One of the things that I'm seeing that I'm grateful for is as we have guests and visitors, I'm seeing efforts variously to draw in, to be able to encourage and to talk and, and kind of forms of hospitality. And that's necessary. Think about all the defining that I've had to do with each of you. How much time have I spent helping you to define terms? Okay? It's a very time-consuming process. One of the beauties of it and of the shorter catechism is that you can take that and you can help those who are simple, those who are fools that are beginning to explore, and you can give the definitions. It's practice in teaching, and you who teach, you will teach yourselves. And so those basic things, that makes it easier for me to speed up as I try to teach other things and to find the things that are harder to teach those people. And so I want to encourage those conversations, but to make sure, do you know the definitions? Do you have the answers down clearly? So if you don't, what is your focus? Get the definitions. If you do, what's the focus? Well, you want to try to apply them, and you want to be able to help to communicate those things to other people as opportunity arises. And hospitality is the principal place where beautiful teaching occurs. Hospitality is the principal place where beautiful teaching occurs. Now, the words of wisdom are all plain to him who understands. And right to those who find knowledge. So once they not only understand, but know it, they know it's true. The rightness of it becomes obvious. And so when we try to define the basic things, when we seek to avoid the hot button issues and and that, but not in a like you know evasive way, not in a way that's you know sort of a hiding or pretending to not have the position, but in the sense that we try to learn how to draw down, and we go to the more basic things, we can help people to understand. 
So definitions, thinking about things. That's why the basic questions, the basic questions are a training tool to think about how to go down. Okay, what's right? Okay. Does that accord with reality? What's, what's real? How do you know? And so having the answers to those questions and being able to draw them down gives you a structure to be able to see the plainness of things for people. And then as they see the plainness of it, as they see the clarity of it, then the rightness of it also becomes easier to see. Because removing the objections and helping them to see the definitions, to see the system, makes it so that the obvious superiority of the truth stands out. Verse 10, Receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, we see the same line. Chapter 3 has this little cluster of verses, verses 13 to 18. It says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. That one, verse 15, word for word the same. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left hand riches in honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. I like God. I think he's pretty great. Chapter 8, verse 11, really bothers scholars. Here's why it bothers scholars. In all the rest of this poem, in chapter 8, wisdom refers to herself as I. And all of a sudden, we get to a third person. And all, and all of the manuscripts, all all of the manuscripts, like all of them, no exceptions, all of them, have this verse there. And scholars hate this change so much and the way that it like, kind of messes up the poem that they frequently try to suggest that verse 11 must not have been a part of the original writing. No manuscript evidence for this. None. Zero. Zero manuscript evidence for this. But they just don't like the verse being there. So you will find lots of commentaries just say, Verse 11 is chapter 3, verse 15, and somebody saw that this was similar and just wrote it in there. Okay, so this is what scholars do when they don't like something the Bible says. They just make up that this thing isn't actually there. So verse 11, I love it because it makes so many scholars angry because it messes up some of the beauty of the poem. And the other thing is, some people will overemphasize aesthetics rather than the message. God cares more about the message than the aesthetics, and the aesthetics are a tool for the message. And so God has this beautiful teaching, and all of a sudden there's this slap right in there, repetition of something from earlier on. And the idea is to make that a point that stands out. What's the point that God wants to stand out? For wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. 
Silver, choice gold, rubies, all inferior. There is nothing, there is no property that can be compared with her. She's the good. So, verse 12, we get to this discussion of the fruit of wisdom. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. The dwelling with, think about this, when wisdom inhabits you, when wisdom dwells with you, what are the things that come along? What are the things that she moves in with? When she moves in, what does she furnish the place with? You might call these the fruits of wisdom. Prudence. So good choice of action. And a desire, a hunger for knowledge. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. So when wisdom moves in, she causes the person who has wisdom to seek out more knowledge and discretion, the ability to differentiate things. The fear of the Lord is to hate wisdom, right? Wisdom, what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And so what does wisdom do? Wisdom causes us to fear the Lord. And what does that mean that wisdom causes us to do? Wisdom causes us to hate evil. Wisdom causes us to hate pride. Viewing ourselves too high or too low. A wrong assessment of things. Wisdom causes us to hate pride in ourselves and to hate it in other people. Wisdom causes us to hate arrogance. The acting on pride. The acting as though one is higher than one is. Wisdom causes us to hate the evil way and to hate evil speech. Perverse mouth. The perverse mouth I hate. And so all of these things are things that wisdom seeks to eliminate in wisdom's home. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. The word sound wisdom there is a tushia, which is not the same as, as Haskell, but it is, it is essentially interchangeable. It's not the same root, but it's an interchangeable word. Okay, so when you look at it, it's, it's this idea of sound wisdom, that word tushia, is, is another word that means success or prosperity. Um, and so the idea is wisdom gives good counsel to how to do things. Right? By wisdom, counsel is given for the waging of war. And the idea that sound wisdom, in other words, this, this skill of practical performance to accomplish. So wisdom has good counsel and wisdom has the, the power of bringing about success and prosperity. Wisdom is understanding. Now, let's think about that for a second. There's understanding in the sense of just understanding the meaning of things, but there's also understanding in the sense that you can say, well, I understand the meaning, and I also understand this to be true. Right? So when you have the right definition of good and the right definition for the means to the good and understand that to be true... That's wisdom. So, this is sort of a way of saying understanding with assent of what is good and the means to it. So this idea that she's understanding and she's an understanding that has strength. She has strength. And this word for strength, you remember Ishkail Gabor? Okay? The word for strength there, it's not Gabor because that's the idea of, of, a, of a, a great man. 
Okay, but it's it's the same root. It's this idea of strength. It's the same root as Gabor. Okay. So I am understanding and I have strength or power. Now then this moves into the idea of the kingly of power. Okay? So the wisdom brings power with it. By wisdom, by me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, not just princes, but also nobles. All the judges of the earth. Right? So people who exercise power rightly, that exercise of power is done by wisdom. Now, when princes rule wrongly, they're destroying their own power base. Injustice destroys a throne. And so if you want power, wisdom will teach you how to carry out actions that cause an increase of power. Because wise action brings power to itself. And so dominion and wisdom are aligned together. Now, wisdom goes on, and we're going to see how this works, because we're going to see riches and honor come along. Okay, so that's a part of that process of the formation of power. So, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. This is sort of like when Jesus says, to those who have, more will be given. There's this way in which wisdom begets more wisdom. And the blessings of wisdom go to those who seek wisdom. Because wisdom tends towards these things. Verse 18, riches and honor are with me. Enduring riches and righteousness. Okay, Righteousness is associated with honor and, and kingliness. This idea that when you act righteously, when you do right things, it brings honor. Now, the harder and more noble the right action, the more honor it will tend to bring. And so, Western civilization is filled with the stories of dragon slayers because the idea is, here's this monster, it's hard to kill, and it's probably going to kill a woman. So I'm going to kill the dragon and get the girl. And this is supposed to be an action that brings honor. This comes from the tradition of the idea of the serpent and the dragon. So we think about Satan and resisting Satan. But so this, this idea of doing righteousness, even when it's difficult, and in fact, the more consistent it is, and the more difficult it is, there is this multiplying of honor. And doing the right thing, even when it's hard, tends towards riches. Not just riches, but enduring riches. Because there's a way to get riches and lose it real quick. So, the fool and his gold are soon parted, but the wise man and his gold tend to become lifelong friends, and they bring new friends into the mix. My fruit is better than gold. Yes, than fine gold. My revenue than choice silver. So it, it includes wealth. It includes gold and choice silver. But the revenues of wisdom are better than that. That's like a fringe benefit. 
And so the money just becomes a tool to do more right things and to gain more wisdom and to spread that. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. So, wisdom travels on the way of righteousness in the middle of the paths of justice so that, so that wisdom can cause the lovers of wisdom, the philosophers, to inherit wealth and fill their treasuries. Righteous action causes wealth. Righteous action causes dominion. The law of God is a tool of dominion. The law of God tells us what dominion is. Dominion is doing what the law of God says. And when you don't waste your time squandering all of these things that bleed out time and resources are replaced with things that build. And which treasures are more valuable than money? Wisdom. And so, wisdom begets wisdom. Wisdom begets wealth. Wisdom begets power. And it does this by causing the shedding off and the getting rid of the old man and the putting on of the new. Now, lest we be tempted to think that these good things are the thing worth getting, verses 22 to 31 remind us that wisdom is God. And so, I will not be commenting through at length, but I want you to pay attention to certain key words. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. The beginning of God's way is before time. Okay, so it's a statement that wisdom's eternal. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. It's a statement of eternality. Okay, so the old Greek translation of the Lord created me at the beginning of his way is totally bogus and cannot fit together with verse 23. Okay, so the Hebrew translation does not have that problem. The Hebrew original does not have that problem. So the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning. Before there was ever an earth. Right In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. So even before the beginning, wisdom was there. So from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields, or the primordial dust of the world. Okay, These things are, are references to things in the creation days. So before these things in the first six days. And the primordial dust, the primordial dust is what God made in the beginning. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That formless dust, before the formless dust in the beginning. 
When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, this idea of of the, the making of the globe, the making of the earth. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So the Father delighted in him, and he delighted in the Father. Rejoicing in his inhabited world. Right, the inhabited world, so after the creation, it says it was very good. He rejoiced along with the Father at the goodness of this created and inhabited world. When it was no longer without form and void, but instead it had form. And it was partly filled. Verse 31, Rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Now wisdom looks at the sons of men. And why is wisdom talking to the sons of men? Why is he talking to the sons of men? Why is she talking to the sons of men? To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. Because she is seeking to save the lost. And so she will draw out the elect, justify them, and transform them, and beautify them. And so this, our initial creation as a master craftsman is followed by the workmanship that we are being transformed. And so he rejoices in the inhabited world. The woman wisdom, her delight, was with the sons of men. Now therefore, listen to me, my children. Here's the conclusion. For blessed are those who keep my ways... And so her delights with the sons of men. And the sons of men, their blessing, their delight is with wisdom. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. That right there, verse 34, is another proof text for daily worship. watching daily at the gates of wisdom. Why? You're at the gates of wisdom daily seeking to have opportunity to be taught by wisdom. Waiting at the posts of my doors. So, at the gates and at the doors. Does that remind you of Deuteronomy? Chapter 6. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. That the favor of the Lord is obtained by grace alone through faith alone, having wisdom. John 17.3, the knowledge of God is eternal life. Finding wisdom is finding life. Verse 36, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. 
All those who hate me love death. We are designed in such a way that wisdom, that God, the knowledge of God is our good. Sinning against God, sinning against wisdom is sinning against yourself because you are designed to possess God, to possess wisdom. And since wisdom is life, since God is life, hating God, hating wisdom is loving death. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your attention, Louise. I have a couple of questions. So in verse um, 24, it reads in the New King James, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Um, is, there, is there a different way to understand that than, than being created? Forgive me if you... If you I, I didn't comment on that. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, had, I not, had I managed my time better, I would have commented on it. So, uh, this is the eternal begottenness of the Son. Okay. So, the eternal begottenness of the Son is not a, an essence or substance inferiority of the Son or a createdness. This is talking about the intra-Trinitarian covenant. So, the eternal begottenness of the Son is the economic trinity. It's the agreement of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for their roles. And so the Son is brought forth or begotten in covenant with the Father. So that he is the Son. He is the Son by covenant. Okay, so this is talking about the covenantal begottenness and not like a, a creation of essence, like, a, like being created. Right. And being. Okay. And then um, my second question is uh, verse 35 reads Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Um, so you kind of explain that, that this favor is obtained is by grace alone through faith alone. Um, it seems like maybe a little tautological um, because. Favor is God's grace, right? Mm-hmm. And so, we—that is it—is it accurate that you're saying we have, we obtain God's more of God's favor? God gives more of His favor when we believe, but even that, even that belief is a gift. So it's like He—it's like favor begets favor begets more favor begets more favor, sort of thing. So yes, but what I was saying—that's all true. So what I was saying was that um, when it says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, I was saying you obtain the favor of God by having wisdom, by, by the instrument of faith. Okay. So the favor of God instrumentally is obtained by faith. Meritoriously, it's obtained by, by Christ. Now, that favor, God's favor is unchanging, right? But the idea is, how do you take possession of his favor? Um, how do you take possession of his grace? Right? It's the adoption. It's the, it's the benefits of favor, the benefits of grace. I, I thought we did not obtain God's favor through the instrument of faith. I thought that, 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 the, that the grace is there. God has favor toward us. That doesn't change, like you said. I'm, mm-hmm. not trying to, I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah, so what you just said is correct. Okay. Um, so, there are different senses yeah. that we can talk, right? So, sure. 
in the sense when we're talking about God and His nature, He His favor is eternal. His eternal is un, His favor is unchanging. Yes. So, at the same time, there's the whole all of the mechanics of the law uh-huh. in the covenant of grace are about His favor being righteous, right? Yeah. And so the idea is that we legally obtain it through that 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 structure of law okay okay i see so the 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 favor so to speak of having always obey like that the the pleasing Mm -hmm. right right okay and then the possession of the benefits of that favor right yeah we 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 obtain gifts of favor Right. Yes. So you think about how the New Testament frequently uses the word grace. Yeah, as a gift. Yeah. Right. The idea of the benefits that are from grace, not yeah. grace itself. Sure. So I think we we can think about this text, and I think it's it's got to be referring to one of those two things. Yeah. It might be able to be referring to both. I'm not I'm not sure, but that's my that's okay. my understanding. Thank you very much for sure. Okay. Anything else? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to grow in wisdom. We ask that you would help us to watch daily at the gates of wisdom, to wait at the posts of wisdom's doors, that we would listen to wisdom. Father, we ask that you would give us these blessings, the things that dwell with wisdom, prudence, knowledge, discretion, Increasing fear of you, the hatred of evil, the hatred of pride, the hatred of arrogance and the evil way, the hatred of the perverse mouth. We ask that you would give us good counsel and a prospering of our action. You would cause us to grow in understanding and strength. You would help us to reign, to decree justice. We ask that you would increase our possession of wisdom. We ask that you would give to us riches and honor, enduring riches and righteousness. That you would give to us fruit that's better than gold, revenues that are better than choice silver. Father, I ask that you would cause us to travel in the way of righteousness and in the middle of the path of justice. We pray that you would give to us a great inheritance. That you would cause us have our treasuries filled that we would see Arizona as a nation that bows the knee to Christ that we would see this valley filled with the knowledge of you as the waters cover the sea we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen